0: Hey, it's your host Omar, and welcome to the Curiosity Project. Today you are joining a conversation I had with Dr. Jonathan Sadowski. He is a very well respected and prolific academic with specializations in history, psychiatry, bioethics, and many more. He is also the author of the brilliantly impactful book, Empire of Depression. We both entered a wonderfully meandering conversation that involved the state of depression across the world, how we can deal with it, what depression is, the potential role of psychedelics and theories around telepathy. Please do forgive me for the issues in sound quality. Unfortunately, there was nothing we could do in post-production, but I felt the episode was just too good not to post. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing?
1: I'm fine, Omar. Thank you for having me. This is a pleasure and a privilege.
0: No, no, the pleasure is mine. The pleasure is mine. How are you doing? How's your week been? We're kind of midweek. Um, uh, how's everything?
1: Well, if I'm honest, it's been a little bit hectic. I'm I'm my department chair, and there's a lot going on, so uh, it's busy, but it's good. I'm feeling fine. Um, you know. I like to be busy, but there is such a thing as too busy. I'm sure most people would agree. So,
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? It's a blessing and a curse. Uh, having always looking at your schedule and knowing exactly what you're going to do and having your morning till your evening kind of, you know, booked out is always a lovely feeling. It's quite, you know, self-rewarding almost. Uh, but then at the end of the day, you realize how knackered you are. Uh, yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> and how are you?
0: Uh, yeah, very well, thanks. Very well. It's um, uh, uh, You know, the weather hasn't been so great in the UK uh, the last couple of weeks. And I think there might be uh, some kind of mutation on the flu going around right now, because uh, everyone seems to be getting sick, but it's not COVID. Um, I think I've had probably about seven meetings cancelled in the last two weeks on people falling sick with the same thing um, well
1: the, the weather is absolutely dismal in cleveland but that's um, not unusual so <laughs> those of us you know we we have to struggle to keep our spirits up which is relevant i suppose to our topic today
0: i couldn't agree more i mean actually talking about keeping your spirits up um have you ever read the uh, the book by a guy called mike wiking by any chance So I think he runs the Institute of Happiness in Denmark. Um yeah um, he, he kind so of...
1: I know a little bit about this positive psychology movement and I also know that uh, in these national comparative ratings the Danes always come up high in happiness. It's evidently a very happy country. In fact, if I'm not mistaken I do think I may, might have mentioned that in Empire of depression about Denmark and uh, its high ratings for happiness I sort of I think hopefully somewhat Riley put it it's not the weather that's keeping spirits up in Denmark. So um, I think that's relevant.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's 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 a weird one, because I think they only have like, on average, something like five or six hours of sunlight, maybe even less than that every day. Um, but the one thing that always confused me about the happiness ratings in Denmark, I know they have the idea of hygge, uh, you know, the idea of appreciation and you know they value the small things in life whether it's lighting a candle or eating a, a you know a, a dessert or something like that or a cake uh, but the one thing i've noticed is when you look at the statistics the the suicide rate seems to be very very high in denmark um but yet the happiness rating is also very very high and i always f- felt as though that if a if a country had a high suicide rate then the happiness rating should be very low uh, have you have you come across that
1: I was not aware of those uh, that contradiction of statistics. I did not know the suicide rate was high in Denmark. I would be willing to speculate about how to explain this discrepancy, um, but I would only do so, as, um, you know, on the grounds that it's understood as a speculation, mm. not an informed opinion. I think that it's p- quite possible that one of the um, things that generates happiness and counters depressive affect which of course is different from depressive illness although it's related but one of the things that is most powerful in countering actually both depressive affect and depressive illness is a sense of social solidarity a sense that um you know we're all in this together we're a, a knit society we have responsibilities towards one another and i think that um the high level of social services and things like that in Denmark, contribute to that feeling of solidarity. However, it's possible, I'm just guessing, it's possible that with such a high valuation on social solidarity, it could be especially hard on people who do not feel that sense of solidarity, people who feel excluded or people who don't have close ties, don't feel alienated from the society. Uh, the great sociologist Emil Durkheim in the you know classic study of suicide, which I'm sure the sociologists have improved on it over the years, but I think that the basic idea that um, social isolation, a sense of alienation from your society is a high risk factor for suicide probably holds, and it may be all the more Troubling if you're surrounded by people who also who, who feel the opposite way who feel very tied into their society We see this by the way uh, in um, Many of the liter- much of the narrative literature on depression, which you know, I I treat in the last chapter of my book often things that are meant to generate Happiness in most people or are thought to generate happiness like natural beauty for example Um parties whatever they can be especially these things can be especially hard on people with depressive feelings because they feel uh there's a contradiction between what they think they're supposed to feel and what they're feeling
0: yeah i mean it's it's a really fascinating point to me because it kind of lends itself into the idea of of marginalization and alienation right you know it's kind of like what what um and and then i think we lead into a world of almost like a tyranny of the majority you know which is the majority of people should be happy with this kind of thing and the 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 minority that are not feel marginalized and alienated and almost feel as though that they've been they've they've been dealt the wrong set of cards in life and it kind of makes them come become introspectively negative they think there's something wrong with them that they're they're broken somehow. And it, it's, yes, I, it's a strange, it's a strange kind of thing.
1: Yes, I, I think that um, I, it was Sally Brampton, one of the depression memoirists that I wrote about, I think it was Sally Brampton, who uh, was very irked by a friend who they were out on a walk, I think, uh, in London, and it was sunny and beautiful. And the, the friend said something like, how can you be depressed amidst all this, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of depression and how it works. But this is, this was a theme that I found in many of these memoirs, um, that, um, it's, uh, it can be very hard on people who are suffering from acute clinical depression or severe clinical depression, or maybe even mild depression. It can be very troubling to be told, you know, you have nothing to be depressed about because that's actually in some ways, One of the defining features of depressive illness is that in some ways the affect is out of whack with the objective circumstances. Often, not always. I don't think we, you know, I, I call this, I don't really love this phrase, but I never was able to think of a better one. I call this the proportionality criterion for depression. And that's this idea that in some way, uh, for it to qualify as clinical depression, It needs to be out of sync with the the objective facts of someone's life, the objective level of adversity. Now, that is not a formal part of current psychiatric diagnostics, but it's a very widely held ethics ethic and it has a very long history in Western medical thought dating from the days of Hippocrates Mm. going up to the age of Freud and well into the present and it's widely held in lay circles
0: yeah it's interesting i mean that that kind of progression of the understanding going from was it called mel- melancholia or something like that with hypocrite yeah with hippocrates and then kind of evolving into the dsm um uh, uh, kind of checklist that we have today um i mean that's something i'm really interested in kind of picking your brain about but i think before we do that uh jonathan would you uh, mind if you could introduce yourself first and foremost? Who are you, and and what is it that you do uh, on a day-to-day basis?
1: Oh uh, well, sure. Um, so obviously, my name is Jonathan Sadowski. I was um, I was born and raised in New York City. Um, I uh, wanted to be. A college professor from an early age for some reason that's another story kind of odd odd choice because (laughs) a lot of people decide they want to do that when they're in college I wanted to do that before I got to college
0: did you did you have Um, parents that were educators was 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 that what it was
1: no um, my parents were um, I would I would call them bookworms uh, Ah. but I wouldn't say they were educators my father was an attorney and a politician um, but very, very, um, in, very pro-literacy. Did a lot to support New York City's library system. In fact, was honored and feted by more than once by the, uh, the by the library systems in New York. And my mother was a reporter, writer, editor, who cared very much about language and writing. And they both were reading constantly. I, that's what I was surrounded by growing up. Was was reading and um, and so no, they weren't educators. Um, when I got to college, I um, this may be a little bit more of
2: a lengthy biography than you intended, but no, I've
1: please. Uh, When I got to college, I, I thought that I was actually going to be going into literature. I wanted to study literature, but I found I was better at history, which I didn't really like in high school. I didn't really enjoy history that much, but I started to like it more in high school. I mean, in college. One of the things that really got me interested in history actually was the discovery through my college mentor of African history, which is what I ended up getting my PhD in um and it was um i think it was fascinating to me for a number of reasons but i think one of the reasons african history and african studies was so fascinating to me was that it i'd learned i knew so little about it we'd never been introduced to it um it wasn't even a thing i mean now my kids are in school they do get a smattering of it Uh, not really deep but they actually get exposed to it but i had no exposure to it um the only exposure we got in my in my you know primary and secondary education was um, through the history of the slave trade. Mm. And then and from and in that point of view, only really what happened in the United States. It was so parochial. So to learn there were these you know vast other worlds, multiple worldviews and and way different ways of thinking and and it was fascinating to me. And then when i went to graduate school to do my phd in history i chose to do african history and i did a a study of um, the social history of mental illness in nigeria which ended up being my first book imperial bedlam and it that book raised a question that has continued to fascinate me for my entire career which is put in very simple terms is madness the same across cultures or does it it vary wildly? If you're familiar with my work, people who are familiar with my work know that my answer to that is that it's not really an either or, that there there are differences certainly, and that there are also overlaps. That's my answer to the question. Um, After I completed that book, um, I turned my attention to American psychiatry, and I, uh, did a book about electroconvulsive therapy and again i although this wasn't about so much about the definition of madness and culture i was attracted to an ambiguity because on the one hand you had many people saying this is a horrific kind of medical abuse no. um the worst um, kind of medical malpractice and you had on the other hand people saying things like it was the penicillin of psychiatry the single most effective treatment and um so you know if you've ever seen these science fiction movies where there's two alternate realities mm. that the hero is living in that's what i felt like reading the literature on electroconvulsive therapy and i i got i'm that's how i work i'm really drawn to figuring out ambiguities and and things that don't have easy answers and um so that's what i did and then uh and then i turned to this large history of depression for my third book and again, you know, I was interested because of some of these complex questions about how it's defined, is it universal, does it exist across time? So you asked what I do every day. Well, I teach courses in history and, uh, and social studies of medicine. Um, I teach a lot about race in medicine. I teach about mental illness and mental health. I also teach world history, which I love. It's a blast teaching world history, and I teach courses in African history as well. And I'm also, uh, I, I'm also my department chair right now, which means I do some administration. So, um, yeah, I'm busy. I have a lot to do <laughs> every <everything I> day. <do. laughs>
0: I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, I, I I think kind of a, a couple of things I'm quite interested in is um, first and foremost, what was what, what do you feel as though was the motivating factor for you to want to study. Um, uh, mental health in such extraordinary detail
1: Um, well you know Decisions like this um, and life paths like that are generally what um, social scientists call overdetermined, meaning they have more than one cause. OK, I think that it all started for me um, with uh, I didn't intend when I went to graduate school, I didn't intend to study mental health, mental illness. In fact, I didn't think I would study anything that had to do with science or medicine at all. I right. was interested in African cultural history, social history, urban history. In 1989, my graduate school mentor assigned a article by an Oxford professor named Megan Vaughn. We read this in my graduate seminar, and it was about a so-called lunatic asylum in Malawi at that time, Nyasaland. And Vaughn, who really led the way for me, Vaughn asked this really basic question with a british institution and malawian inmates how did they decide who was mad if in fact madness is um, variable across culture yeah and um and so i i remember at the time when i read the article i thought this is so fascinating someone should do a book length project on this i didn't think it was going to be me um, later that year, I went to Nigeria on a pre-dissertation t- trip. I was scouting out dissertation topics, and I found that there were these uh, same institutions or similar institutions in Nigeria, and I said, well, that's my dissertation topic. So in a sense, there was a little bit of fortuity here. I mean, mm. um, but, you know, as for why, you know, you might be wondering why, um, you know why the continued fascination? Why not move on to other things? You know, there's a lot of things to study. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, I think that for me, what grips me about this subject so much, and why I have this continued fascination with it, is the continuity that it has with normal human experience. That is, I am not among those who believe that, um, you know, I don't say things like in my writing, like madness is just a a normal response to an insane world that we live in, Mm. much as I do think the world is (laughs) quite insane in many ways. Um, I I don't take that view. um, And I don't take the view that, you know, many, I I think this is still fringe, but it's still out there is this idea that originated with the anti-psychiatry movement in the 19 and 60s this Mm. idea that mental illness is a myth it's not not a real thing I I don't find that to be a useful way of thinking about things but what I do think is that various forms of madness which is a very broad non-clinical term but various forms of it are things that we all partake in to some degree Let let me be clearer about what I mean so we could talk for example about the universality of depressed affect we all know what that feels like if you talk about the symptoms of depression the lack of appetite inability to get out of bed um, you know feelings of Mm. self-recrimination sadness all of that could be very common in somebody who's just been dumped by their partner. Yeah. And, um, you know, that. so it's, it is it is on a continuity with normal experience. Now, not everyone who's been dumped by their partner is, is clinically depressed, and I'm not an advocate of medicalizing all of human distress. What I am saying is that there's a way in which we partake of this. And I was just talking about this in my um, History of Medicine class yesterday, mm. because we were talking about the difference between depression on the one hand, and um, schizophrenia or the psychosis on the other hand, because at first glance, it might seem as though, well, yes, depression is on a continuity with normal human reaction to life. But psychosis, surely that's a little bit different where people are having delusions, where they've departed from consensual reality, or people are hearing voices that nobody else hears. But I actually think this is an idea that uh, comes partly from certain strands of psychoanalytic thought. And it's controversial and, uh, you know, I, I, but I'm gonna put it out there anyway. Hmm. I actually do think that even psychosis is something that some, m- most of us can relate to in some level, that it, it's a part of ourselves that we repress successfully. And it's important that we do because it's healthy to repress it. But we're all subject, in some ways, to deluded ideas, right? I mean, if you think, if you introspect carefully enough, you will realize, I think, that you hold views that really are not confirmed by evidence, and um, and you will also you don't may not hear literal voices, but we all talk about it metaphorically. Well, you know, there was a voice in my head that was t- telling me, "You must do this. You're compelled to do this." Finally, I don't want to belabor the point, but we all dream. Mm. We all have dreams at night. And the the weird distortions of reality, how two people can be the same person in a dream, the way scenes can shift dramatically, the way things can be freighted with symbolic significance they would not have in waking life, that's something we all know. And so, so in some ways we can all, I think, have some understanding, maybe not complete understanding, of what psychosis is like, and because of that, I think that um, I think that um, madness has something uh, to teach all of us. Mm. I, I don't. It's important to understand. It's important to stress. I mean, for people suffering from these disorders, it's important in itself. I don't mean to imply that their importance only lies for, you know, what the rest of us can learn from them. But I do think that there is something to be learned. And um, to get back to the question of depression, um, you know, I was giving an early presentation on my work on this when the book was in a very new stage. And, And I keep coming back to Oxford props today, but uh, another oxford prof was at the um at the meeting where i presented this uh, a colleague of mine and she said um uh, after i gave my presentation she, i was talking about how fraught it is to define depression and, and the difficulties of it and she said something which i repeated in the book i, I gave her credit but she said you know it touches all of our lives mm. and i would venture i would ask the people listening now whether you have experienced clinical depression yourself or not i would venture that it has touched your life you have had a family member you have had a friend in some way this has touched your life so uh that's that's part of the fascination for me and why i'm really uh you know stuck to this topic you know on a more mundane level I think that, um, really at this point in my life, it's what I know how to do. It's what I know how to study. Um, when I think of, uh, moving on to completely different topics, the thought of, you know, trying to train myself to have the competence, it, it takes, um, to study mental health and mental illness historically really requires, um, some tooling up if you're going to do it well. You really need to understand something about psychiatry and you need to understand something about epidemiology and you need to understand, obviously, you need to understand the history. And there's a lot of things to master here. And um, I'm, you know, I think it's important we don't always, as historians, have to defer to the science. That is, we can make our own judgments. But we need to understand the science, and we need to understand it, um, res- you know, in a respectful way. I, I, I'm a, have great respect for science. It's not always right, but um, as a method, I have great respect for it.
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot to unpack there, uh, Jonathan. I mean, uh, so I think first and foremost, with regards to um, the, the 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 continuing interest and fascination that you have with mental health, and more particularly the the study of depression um I, as far as i'm concerned I, th- I think it's you know truly extraordinary um and and reading the uh the, the most recent book uh, that you've come out with uh, was really uh really a rather uh, eye-opening experience for me um i think the relevancy of of depression um or or feeling depressed and i think those two uh those two different ways of putting it are something that i want to ask you about later on sure. um, because i think there's a, a common misconception or a, or a common conflation between those two different phrases uh and i want to get your opinion on that but yeah um i think particularly in the post uh, covid world in the post pandemic world i think the idea the, the uh, depression seems to have touched more people in the last two or three years than it has in the last decade uh people are now understanding um uh, what depression could potentially mean as opposed to just feeling sad uh, or feeling disconnected. I think um, the value of saying that I'm depressed um, is is now being impressed op- upon some people. And I think, uh, you know, uh, there are definitely some vocal commentators out there. You know, Dr. Jordan Peterson is someone who's come out and said that he has suffered from depression and he's tried to define it. Uh, I think he he gave an interesting definition. Um, but I think very similar to, uh, you know, you mentioned dreaming, um, you know, all of these things have a very common kind of, um, thing going on, which is that they can't really be explained, uh, whether it's by philosophy or whether it's by science, you know, we don't really know why we dream. Uh, we, we're not really entirely sure what causes depression. We know that there's certain things that are genetic and environmental, but, we don't really know, and it's it's an interesting thing for me. I mean, uh, just on a bit of a side note, you mentioned we we all have experienced uh, delusional thoughts. We've all experienced a form of madness. I think there's there's two things I want to mention. Uh, there was a there was a great TED talk by uh, John Ronson um, where he spoke about psychopathy, um, and he told a story about a guy who had convinced the courts uh, to not go to prison. He had convinced the courts that he was mad. Um, and instead of going to a prison, he was, he was taken to a hospital called Broadmoor uh, in yeah. the UK. Um, Broadmoor yeah. is, I guess, a prison for the clinically insane. Um, and uh, he spent the next 10 years trying to convince people that he wasn't mad. And I think the interesting thing that I took away from that is once you're once you're mad, anything you say from then on is kind of marred with that, it's painted with the brush of uncertainty and skepticism. Um, it's almost impossible to dig yourself out of that hole after that because the the checklist involved in diagnosing whether whether you're insane or whether you're a psychopath or a sociopath or whatever it might be, is a is kind of a, a circular is a circular diagnosis. So For psychopathy, they say that you're you're manipulative and glib. So if you try and convince someone that you're not insane, then you're satisfying the (laughs) the the elements of the diagnosis. Um, So you know it's 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 interesting to me that I think that um, you know in terms of the diagnosis, there's definitely certain things I want to ask you about the DSM uh, checklist. Uh, But I was reading more recently uh, about the feelings of madness. Is uh, I've been quite interested in the world of of psychedelics, uh, mm-hmm. and how and and how the 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 the, the, um, the relevancy of that is kind of c- c- coming up in society, uh, and more specifically the f- uh, dimethyltryptamine, um, the fact that we produce it naturally in the body, uh, and I think mm-hmm. anyone who's who's experienced um, sleep deprivation. Uh, anyone who's decided to stay up late at night and try and get a uh, you know when they're at university or college or whatever and try and reach a deadline um, has experienced a certain level of hallucination. Uh, your body kind of starts producing large amounts of dimethyltryptamine and you start seeing things and it's kind of woozy and and trippy. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is something I totally understand. We all have that voice in our head. We all we all when we're when we're alone in a room. Uh, and we, we feel feelings of loneliness are starting to overtake us, we do have that voice in our head that provides us with a certain degree of comfort, with a certain degree of company. You know, it's an interesting idea, and I think holding a mirror up to your own madness is quite an uncomfortable feeling for most people. Um, rather than coming to terms with it, they would rather put it away in a, in a, in a, in a room and kind of compartmentalize it out of their mind. So I definitely under it's it's an interesting thought um, when you when you hold that up to people.
1: You've raised so many issues, Omar. I'm not uh, I'm I'm torn about what to respond to. I mean, I'm I'm really I could talk now. I guess I'll leave it up to you. I mean, I could talk about the mysteries of causation of depression. That's a subject fascinating to me. We could talk about the impact of COVID. We could talk about psychedelics, which I've also grown very interested in, mm. and. I'm, trying to integrate into my new research and also you raised the issue of labeling like how do you once you're labeled uh how do you get out from under that and um you know really those are four subjects i could talk about any one of them
0: absolutely well why don't we why don't we work our way through these uh, kind of pieces but i think why don't we start off with like what what does depression mean first and foremost uh, what what is depression how uh I, I think i'd probably like to start off with the idea of you know like when people say that they feel depressed, what's the difference between that and actually being actually suffering from depression, feeling depressed and suffering from depression? Are those two different things? And what do they mean?
1: They are different things, but there's a gray area. It's not a stark binary that we can talk about. And that's what makes depression very hard to define. Uh, In most understandings, it is an illness of uh, that involves really um, sad affect, but a couple of caveats. First of all, you don't actually need sad affect to get, to, uh, to get the diagnosis in the current system. Although that is something very, very common, uh, held in many cultures in many eras of history as an element of this illness but it's important to also to understand that um, some people describe less sadness than a kind of numbness inside and uh, an inability to feel anhedonia. The inability to feel pleasure is a very common or to take joy in anything is also a very common symptom. Mm. And, um, you know, also, um, so for people who feel this kind of numbness, sometimes. Actual sadness, the ability to cry can come as a relief and can be a sign of recovery. Right. Now, at this point in the discussion, many critics might jump in and say, well, you've got this cluster of symptoms. You don't have to have them all. The number you have to have is somewhat arbitrary. Who decides? My answer to that is, yeah, it is a little fuzzy. It's not an easy thing to pin down. But that doesn't mean that it's not real. uh, And that doesn't mean that it has no difference. The, you know, in terms of the continuity with normal depressed affect that we all feel, I think that it's pretty reasonable to say that someone who is feeling pretty bad because their partner dumped them, or they lost their job, um, you know, normal life stressors, I don't, you know, to say that they're to immediately label them as depressed. That's obviously not a move. I don't think any one of us really wants to make. On the other hand, most people, I think, would agree that, you know, years and years of depressed affect, unrelenting, um, suicidal ideation frequently or actual suicide attempts, um, various signs of severity. And then the question is how far does it have to go how yeah. long does it have to go how severe does it have to be and um in a sense the answers to that are going to be arbitrary um because we don't have objective scientific ways of deciding exactly how long it has to be before it's clinically clinical depression i don't think we will ever have that i could be wrong but i don't think we'll ever have that so it's a uh, you know many years ago when i was a uh, first beginning teaching about this material, a student of mine conjured a very powerful image that always stayed with me as a way to think about this. She talked about an archery target. And she said, on the bullseye, we can call that severe clinical depression, like the worst cases that we're talking about. And then on the margins, there's the depressed affect that we all feel Mm. as a part of reacting to everyday life. And every one of us, every human on the planet is somewhere on that target. But there is this, you know, middle ring that's not the center and that's not the periphery. And who, you know, who in that middle ring should be treated medically is a very hard thing to decide. I will say though, you know, although I caution against reckless medicalization of all of life's distress, I'm a little bit less uh, puritanical about okay. this than some uh, people who write about it in that. I think that um, if antidepressants or psychotherapy or any of the other treatments are helping people, you know, it's a cost benefit analysis, but if people are being helped to suffer less, I'm not really that upset about it. Now, the drugs, the medications we have do have side effects and they do have problems like they can be hard to quit if you want to quit them. Yeah, Uh, they're not. I think they're not considered addictive in the strict sense. And there are many flaws in antidepressants. I by no means want to idealize them. I actually think that for many people, particularly with less severe depression, it's probably better to start with psychotherapy and but you know all the data also show that psychotherapy and antidepressants work best together so you know i'm i'm really i think the way i put it in the book is call me old-fashioned but i'm i'm for relieving suffering if we can do it it you know we do have to think about the costs i mean you know the costs with electroconvulsive therapy are, in my view, much higher. The risks are much higher. Uh, I'm not opposed to electric electroconvulsive therapy. I think it's a valuable treatment for a minority of people with severe depression. Um, But it is important that that minority have it available. But the reason it shouldn't be appropriate for everyone is that it can cause really serious long term lasting cognitive deficits and Mm. memory losses and that can be very traumatic and you know it's it's in a sense what i would call strong medicine you know you you don't want to give um you know the the medicines we use that we call chemotherapy for cancer yeah they're they're useful for people who have cancer you don't want to put them in a healthy body and it's the same thing with electroconvulsive therapy so um that's my answer uh as best as I can to the problem of definition, um, I just I, I think if I were to summarize my main point here, um, the and I've gotten some feedback since the book was published, positive feedback uh, hmm. about this point actually that people found this helpful to read that the slipperiness of definition. Um, it does is not an invalidation of the entire category correct yeah and it's not practical it's not pragmatic to think of it that way
0: yeah no that's that's definitely an interesting point that you mentioned i think that the the, the lack of a concrete uh, kind of empirical definition i think many of the so-called skeptics um uh you know the i guess I, I like to call them the kind of stoic warriors right you know these these people who think that you should just get on with it um you know they turn to that and say well listen you know you're just sad you're just you're just a little bit down in your luck right now Uh, but go on a walk and hug a tree and you'll be totally fine Um, you know i I think the japanese kind of uh, you know i have a lot of reverence for the japanese culture and i think they deal with things very very well uh, as a community Um, i think one of the things that i'm a little bit here and there about is perhaps the way that they deal with depression um i think one of the ways that they deal with it is they are they tell their patients to go uh on a walk in a forest and to spend some time with the with nature and they believe that that's enough to to help people with with severe depression um but um no no and i think that they've got bigger things to kind of deal with because they're a culture that doesn't believe in uh you know certain um in in expressing yourself in certain ways in public um that they're not an environment where people feel comfortable to talk about their anxieties and their their depressive thoughts. Uh, So I think it's very much the kind of previous. It's interesting because a lot of people say that depression has gotten worse, and I think it it has gotten worse. Uh, And I think there are definitely more people now that are depressed than there were in my parents' generation or the parents before that. But I think people aren't taking into consideration the amount of undiagnosed depression that there were. Uh, in previous generations how many people took the idea of suck it up and get on with it you know that in itself that there's a lot to unpack just just with someone who has that mentality yeah. um but um, but i think the 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 one thing that i wanted to ask you uh, jonathan is uh, do you feel encouraged or discouraged with the with the way of which that the the word depression seems to have become such such a piece of people's daily vernacular um towards their emo their, their 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 emotive state are you encouraged or discouraged by that do you feel as though that people need to reserve the word i'm depressed for some serious situations rather than you know if you're about to miss you know uh, I, I don't know you're 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 a bit you're under pressure at work for example for a for a time uh, for a timeline i'm really depressed you know i'm i'm super depressed what, what do you think about yeah. that?
1: Well, I think the word itself is is problematic and introduces a lot of problems. I, I think that um, and the reason it's problematic is because of this double meaning. It does refer um, to something that everyone can experience and it does refer to uh, to a clinical syndrome. Or set of illnesses. I mean, there's really not even one clinical depression, and I think that ambiguity of language creates a lot of misunderstanding. Um, maybe we need better language. I don't know uh, exactly what the better language would be. I, you know, um, one thing is we can place the modifier "clinical" in front of depression, so mm-hmm. clinical depression. But that by this that clearly shows that there's a problem because, you know, one has to speak of having clinical cancer or clinical tuberculosis. Yeah. It's, it's automatically clinical. It's, a, you know, it's a medical problem. Um, and so, but then
0: again, you know, like, sorry to cut you, Jonathan, but then again, no, like I with in the, in the world of cancer, I think they, they, they deal with it very well, whether it's Alzheimer's or dementia, or whatever it might be, you know, they, they rank it in stages, right? Stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. Mm. Do you feel as though that maybe a ranking system like that in the world of um, in the world of depression might be useful?
1: It might be. It's a little bit hard because, um, you know, I'm not really deeply knowledgeable about oncology. But it seems to me that one thing that advantage that cancer has uh, is, you know, in terms of making a scale is that there are things you can see in Mm. the body and um, and that make it a little bit easier. I'm not saying that that's completely objective either, but with depression, there's so much that you have to, um, so much that has to be left to subjective reporting of the patient. I'm not saying it's all completely subjective, um, but a lot of it is. And um, so I think to a certain extent, it's gonna remain to be a judgment call, and there's a there's a, a kind of paradoxical ambiguity here too with the language because on the one hand, the uh, idea you know depression because it's something as an effect that we all know in a some in some ways that um, may have destigmatizing effects because it means you know it's an understandable experience. On the other hand um it may mean like as you say people are going to say you know get your get it together go for a run go in the woods and yeah. you know actually exercising and being in nature probably are good things to do but if you're really if in severe cases of clinical depression it's just not going to work by itself it might be part of an overall regime um but it's not going to be enough i i think i mean i go for I, you know, this was a this was a uh, a COVID novelty for me. But mm. um, after the pandemic began, some months into the beginning of the pandemic, for for reasons having to do with lack of access to certain inside spaces, I began exploring the Cleveland Metro Park system, which is a very wonderful system, and you can really feel uh you know i can just drive 20 minutes and i can be in a place where i really feel like i'm in the woods it's not wow. like a city park or something this is really really nice place and i now i i go once or twice a week to one of these parks and i take hikes of uh of an hour or more and uh i find it actually very very helpful for my mental health but i wouldn't give this as a prescription to somebody in severe depression um certainly not by itself
0: Mm, yeah no it's 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 interesting and i mean talking about kind of the the prescriptive treatments involved i've always been very very skeptical of the world of big pharma and i think generally speaking of psychopharmacology i think i've always been more of let's try other things first and then you can use that as a crutch i'm not I don't know if you remember that interview with Tom Cruise. Do you remember that? Uh, where... The one where he
1: said, you don't know the history of yes, psychiatry. Yes, that's the one. Biology. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I
1: remember it very well, because when I saw that, I said, I was thinking to myself, no, Tom, you don't know the history of yeah. psychiatry. I do. I'm a historian of psychiatry. I've I'm written on
0: books on it. History. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it oh. was it was crazy. I mean, I think, you know, it kind of revealed a lot of things. I think it revealed the the, the kind of innate beliefs within within the site the Church of Scientology about how they're very anti, uh, you know, um, uh, um, uh, psychoanalysis and psychology and all this, this sort of stuff and how they're very anti, you know, psychopharmacology. So I'm definitely not on that level. Um, I thought it was interesting because you were mentioning that even though you're not a big fan of 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 um, psychopharmacology, if it helps someone, you know, you can't you're not going to be against helping someone. But I think Tom Cruise was saying it was if I remember correctly, I think it was about Brooke Shields uh, and she was taking antidepressants. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and he was basically saying, no, even if it helped her, she shouldn't take it. I think that's a bit extreme. And I think you'd probably agree with me. Um, yeah, can I speak to that? Yes, yeah, please. I mean,
1: I, I, you know, I think it's any historian of psychiatry, any of, well, anyone in my field who's really even dipped into the literature can find massive instances of um, abuses in psychiatry, coercion in psychiatry, uh, toxic treatments in psychiatry. Um, we uh, psychiatry has at times been a force that has enforced uh, various forms of conformity, like labeling homosexuality Mm. as uh, as an illness, which is, you know, a sorry chapter in the history of psychiatry. Um, You know, um, in involuntary incarcerations, all kind. there's all there. The history of psychiatry is filled with horrors. And to that extent, Cruz was right. I just think there's more to it than that. I think that there's also a history of healing and of help and support. Most of the major um, mental illnesses don't have permanent cures. The way you get an infection, you can take an antibiotic, you're done with it. But that's actually not that uncommon in medicine. And as you reminded us, you know, uh, things that you know, th- things that reduce suffering, I- I'm for. Now you know the the pharma companies they're out for profit, and yeah. they have engaged in bad behavior. I can tell you what the bad behavior is they've yes. suppressed um they've suppressed weak results from their studies uh, that's one of the worst things. Uh, another bad thing I don't consider this quite as bad as suppressing bad results, but still bad is uh what we call disease mongering that is creating new illness categories in order to sell. Uh, to sell medications. And that's, you know, on the one hand, it, it it's not admirable behavior. On the other hand, what do you expect? I mean, in capitalism, that's what companies do. They try to make money. Um, and uh, as long as we're in capitalism, uh, all we can do, which that's another question, whether we should be in capitalism, but leaving for the moment, the question that we are, the best we can do is try to regulate and um, and uh, you know, we could be doing a, a lot better job of regulating. Um, I think that um, I think that uh, antidepressants are probably both overprescribed and and underprescribed. I think they're probably overprescribed to uh, people who have, at least in this country, I don't know about it in the UK. I think mm-hmm. they're probably overprescribed to the affluent, to people who have access to healthcare. We don't have universal healthcare in this country. It's a blot on on the country. It's uh, it's a really bad problem, and I think it probably contributes not only to lack of treatment of depression, but actually may even help generate more cases of depression. Mm. But saying, having said that, you know, I think maybe we're under prescribing um, antidepressants to um, needier, uh, poorer populations. The fact that the pharma companies want to make money is true it doesn't mean that everything they have to offer but it doesn't by itself mean that everything they have to offer is useless after all they make money from vaccines too um and you know that's not a reason to not get your covet vaccine sure. or your shingles vaccination
0: sure yeah no i i i agree i mean i think that i think i think a healthy skepticism of big pharma is probably a good idea generally speaking um, but at the end of the day, we need the medicines that they have. We, 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 we need the medication that they have. I think, you know, I, th- I think that's probably a, a good thing. Um,
1: I also want to say, you know, um, I, in my field, among historians of psychiatry, there's a lot of hostility directed against pharma and um, and mostly and all, almost all of the physical biological treatments for uh, for any mental illness and in some ways i meant in my book to push back against that a little bit not to okay. deny the possibility of harms and profiteering but to say look you know there's there's more to it but having said that i do think i really want to stress mm. to our listeners that um I am a very big believer in talk therapy. And, um, and I think, I, I mean, I agree with you, Omar. I think, um, you know, sit down with a, with a pro and, and, uh, try to work through what's, what are your conflicts in life? What's holding you back instead of, uh, rushing to pills, um, especially if the depression is, is relatively, um, mild and, or, you know, clearly in reaction to circumstances, by the way, you know, uh, there's abuse of psychotherapies too. Mm. And I'm sure, I mean, here, again, I, you know, this is one of the small areas of agreement I have with Tom Cruise, with whom I have much disagreement, (laughs) small areas I do disagree, do agree with him with is, you know, psychotherapy, uh, can be, if it's done badly, can be harmful and abusive too.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think anything involved with with changing the chemical composition or the chemical balance within your body, if taken in the wrong direction can have detrimental long term effects. Um, it's a it's a tough line to 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 kind of walk, isn't it?
1: We shouldn't imagine, though, that talk therapy isn't changing us on a physical level. Mm. I mean, you know, consciousness and affect feel like immaterial things to us, but they're not really consciousness and thought are physical enactments of things that are happening in our brain. If I say to you now, Omar, picture a whale in your brain, you can see a little picture in your brain of a whale. It feels immaterial to you. It doesn't feel like it has substance. but. I believe that something has happened in your brain, a neuron has made a connection. You don't have whales on your consciousness normal on an everyday basis if you're not a whaler, but, um, you know, for you and me to bring that out of our pre-conscious mind and into our conscious mind, it has to involve the brain physically. That's why I think in some ways the uh, dichotomy we make between talk therapy as psychological and um, drugs and electroconvulsive therapy is physical. It's a little bit artificial because um, the uh, the physical interventions are changing our psychology and the psychological interventions are changing us on a bodily level that we, you know, we have very poor understanding of and the human brain is, remains as we saying throughout a great
0: mystery i think i i think the way that i think of it and and i you know uh please feel free to disagree because at the end of the day i th- you know i'm I, I really want to kind of learn and uh, but the way that i think of it is the idea of talk therapy is almost i'm going to kind of make a health uh, a fitness reference here is almost like somebody modifying their diet as a way to be able to put extra muscle on to aid their muscle building in the gym um, which is a fairly natural way of doing things. It's something that we're evolutionary, uh, uh, you know, built to be able to, to handle, and withstand, and it's not pushing our body beyond the natural capabilities of what we're able to do. Uh, I've, I view things like electroconvulsive therapy and more particularly not so much electroconvulsive therapy because electroconvulsive therapy, from what my understanding is, is essentially putting the body or the mind, rather, in a seizure state where it's, uh, is, is, is that correct? um uh, which is why it can have extraordinarily you know terrible fucking effects um if if done incorrectly um uh, but can also be quite beneficial to some people uh, with very very severe depression but more more specifically i'm talking about the kind of medical interventions i'm talking about things like you know whether it be hormone therapy whether it be uh, you know antidepressants like prozac or 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 prop or propanol or whatever it might be um uh, I view that as someone going to the gym and taking steroids, uh, to kind of you know, or taking testosterone, which artificially enhances your body beyond the means of which would be possible with 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 natural means, uh, and is putting your body in a position of which which is unsustainably natural uh, is uh, naturally unsustainable. Uh, if you if you come off of your your steroid cycle, I think that's, and then for the rest of your life, if you want to maintain any degree of 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 sanity or, or maintain the muscle in your body you have to cycle on and off these drugs um that that's what i think i mean by 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 artificially uh changing the chemical composition of your mind and naturally changing the chemical composition of your mind and i think that's why i'm more in in favor of talk therapy
1: you know i think i see the analogy you're making i, I don't th- i think it's uh i think it's I think it's a helpful analogy in some ways, but it's not a perfect analogy. Mm. For one thing, antidepressants really are not uh, enhancements for healthy people. When Prozac was new, there was a lot of fuss over this cosmetic psychopharmacology, but that really didn't pan out at all. Um, There's very little evidence that I've seen that um, antidepressants can make Um, you know, people who are baseline healthy, feel even better. That doesn't really seem to, to happen. I do think the problem of dependence that you're mentioning, I think that's a real one and I think it's a serious one. I, you know. Are we sure, though, that psychotherapy doesn't create dependence, too, right? Mm. I mean, you you get used to having somebody who can listen to your problems and you have that space. And, um, you know, that's that's not necessarily, uh, you know, have a clear end point either. Understood. I actually I actually. A favor. I'm, I'm very open about my opinions. You know, some, mm. some historians say our job is just to tell the story of what happened and contextualize it. I'm only, I do believe in telling the story of what happened and contextualizing it. But I'm pretty opinionated about mm. treatments and so forth, and I'm not ashamed of it, and I don't hide them. I actually think that the forms of talk therapy that that I most favor are the ones that are called dynamic, that are rooted in the, in the trying to work with the unconscious mind um, that, you know, come mostly from the psychoanalytic tradition, although there's other traditions that have contributed to that. And it's not identical with psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis is one form of dynamic treatment. The reason I, uh, I favor them is because I think that the evidence that I've seen suggests that you patients are going to benefit most and have more long-term benefit if they can really get to the root of why they are thinking the way they do and why they're feeling the way they do as opposed to say cognitive behavioral therapy which is based on correcting people's illogical thoughts which actually can be very helpful for some people and can probably bring some relief um, but you know, um, if you're really deeply emotionally invested for some reason in the idea that, you know, you're a worthless person, Mm. having someone point out to you that that's logically fallacious, isn't going to really take you that far. It's no help. Yeah. So I, I actually, you know, that's, I believe in, in, um, you know, in a really deep kind of self-exploration as the, as really probably the most helpful thing. And I, And I think that, um, you know, these dynamic traditions are, are what provided, um, and by the way, you know, this actually links to your, um, links to your mention of psychedelics before in an indirect way, because there's a fascinating theory about why psychedelics work for things like depression and, um, and also addiction and the evidence is very promising I'm Mm. not saying there's perfect scientific consensus but the evidence that uh, psychedelic treatments work for these things is is pretty compelling in my view there's a book I read in the past year called philosophy of psychedelics by a guy named Chris Leatherby and he's a fascinating book. one of the most interesting books I've read on on psychedelics Wow I don't know this guy, so this is not a plug for a friend. I've never no, heard no
0: him. worries. I'll probably be in contact with him after this.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no. He, he's really good. It's a very interesting book. So let me try to summarize what he says. What he says is that um, we all carry around with us certain um, basic priors, that is, certain assumptions about what the world is and how the world works. These And these are very deeply embedded in us. The idea that if you drop something, gravity will pull it down. I mean, just sort of very basic priors, and first, and they, you know, and Much of this is culturally created. I mean, gravity is an ingrained belief because we can observe it every day. Hmm. But but um, some things we can't necessarily observe every day. For example, uh, religious belief. Some people don't yep. believe in deities. Some people believe in m- multiple deities. Some people believe there's only one deity. But if you've been brought up in one of those three categories, it's very hard to, you know, it, th- those become your bedrock assumptions about the universe and mm. that we live in. And it, they're they're very hard to dislodge. Now, in what do psychedelics do? And Leatherby goes into the neuroscience of this, and I can't reproduce the neuroscience off the top of my head. I'd have to look at my notes. But what he argues is that. What psychedelics do is they relax these priors. They make us more able to question things that are deeply embedded in our belief. And that's why, you know, if you see, um, I'm just gonna be a little bit glib about it for a minute, but you know, you you may see a parody of two dudes from the sixties and they're tripping. One of them says, you know well you know we this could be just one of many realities and you know that kind of thing right <laughs> these are the yeah. kinds of thoughts that we don't entertain in in our normal everyday life i mean we might think about it but it wouldn't fascinate us on such a deep level now here's the pivotal point he argues leatherby argues that these priors these basic assumptions include assumptions about who we are what our basic identity is. And these beliefs, these investments in who we are, are so deep that we don't even realize that we hold them necessarily. Mm. And so, for example, in the case of addiction, um, the the person who smokes or who drinks may not consciously know this, but on some level, they have labeled themselves as a smoker or a drinker. And so they believe that it is inevitable that they will smoke or drink. And the psychedelics led to be. and he admits this is somewhat speculative. He doesn't claim to have proven this, but he, he says it allows you to relax this prior and think I could be a different person. I don't have to be a smoker. And it would be the same for depression. Now, the reason this links to what I was saying about psychoanalysis is because I do believe strongly that there is an unconscious mind and that it has a a powerful effect on the way we live and, and the way we comport ourselves, the way we react to events. And, you know, Freud, Jung, other pioneers of this field, they were insistent, not that you could escape the control of the unconscious, not that you could completely liberate yourself from it, but that you could to some degree Make, free yourself from some of its strictures by becoming aware of it. And it seems to me there's something analogous with what psychedelics do. That is, they allow you to make certain thoughts that you might have been ho- holding implicitly and make them conscious and give you some distance from them. And so I, I, you know, I'm really fascinated by this idea. Jung actually, my understanding is Jung was actually opposed to the use of psychedelics, because he thought they would do exactly what he wanted to do, which was make the unconscious conscious. Mm. But he thought it would, they would do them, do this in a too quick, too threatening way. That the unconscious was right. full of dangers, and to really bring it to the surface in such a rushed way was possibly dangerous. He may have had a point. I think the evidence of uh, psychedelic therapy done well is is pretty promising but as with all treatments we do need to be careful i want to add on another thing here a student in one in my class raised a really interesting question yesterday um so you know i had mentioned you'll remember in in my book An empire of depression i say about both antidepressants and cognitive behavioral therapy that in some way they fit our age hmm. um in ways that are not really optimal. That is, I mean, because the age itself isn't optimal. The, the, the era that we live in, the neoliberal era of uh, quick fixes, get people back to work, uh, you know, discourage deep exploration. That was the more of a norm in the psychoanalytic heyday. Um, so, you know, that's, that's part of my critique of antidepressants and of cognitive behavioral therapy is that they're in a sense too close a fit to some of the worst aspects of our culture right now even though I'm not firmly opposed to either and I, I think
0: mm. they both have a It's very much a band-aid solution isn't it?
1: It, it can be I, I'm not saying in all cases but in some cases it can be. A student raised this question yesterday are we doing the same with psychedelics? Is this a quick fix? is this something you know is this some kind of shortcut and now i think she was really made a really interesting point and i uh, and i thought it was very stimulating but i i i slightly disagree with her because psychedelic therapy done well is supposed to be a deep exploration mm. it's not supposed to be something that just quickly alters your mood without any self-examination without any introspection
0: yeah it's uh, it's it's an interesting one right because like for, for, for me I've I've never actually used have you ever used psychedelics by the way Jonathan
1: I actually have
0: May I may ask which ones you used
1: yes you may um, I do uh, say it's been a long time. I have uh, I did uh, LSD a number of times, double digits. I probably don't know the exact number. Did mushrooms once or twice. I did mescaline two or three times. So okay. I have tried these drugs when I was a young person.
0: Okay, interesting. And I, I wonder, what was your experience with mushrooms in particular?
1: Um, I don't know whether it was the dosage or... Or the reason I did not have uh, I did not have a powerful experience with them. I wouldn't say I had a bad experience. I had some changes in my visual perception, um, but I wouldn't call it a profound experience.
0: Okay. Uh, so for for me personally, I've never I've never had a psychedelic trip before. I've never I've never used psychedelics. I have many many friends uh, uh, who are at university with me who would who would regularly use mushrooms. Uh, the reason why I ask about mushrooms in particular, because I think the, the 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 two psychedelics that are really leading in trial in trials right now is is, is psilocybin and uh, and and DMT. Um, and from what I understand, I think dimethyltryptamine is essentially the the psychoactive aspect of magic mushrooms. Um,
1: you may be right. I don't remember. I just read a book about DMT, but I, I can't remember if that's correct. But
0: uh, I'm sure someone will correct me <laughs> but uh, but um uh, i I think I, I think for me from what my understanding of of psychedelics are is they are a shortcut uh, but they are they they're a short they're a way of which uh, like you say done correctly because there are you know just doing this in your dorm room uh, with a bunch of crazies is not an idea is not an ideal kind of you know clinic, clinical environment to do this in. Um, but doing it properly with the correct dosages and making sure that the, that the psychedelics you're using are pure um, and, and of, a, of, a, of a, um, a pharmaceutical grade or whatever it might be um, is a shortcut to, a, to solve a very, very complex problem. Um, you know, I, I know Joe Rogan uh, is a big um, uh, you know, proponent and kind of supporter of psychedelics. Uh, I read a report recently and this was this was, this was really crazy shit uh, and i don't even know what to think about this but there was a there was a, a a test done where they got 30 people together have you seen this they put 30 people together in a room provided them all with the same dose of DMT and then right after their trip which i think lasted 15 minutes immediately took everyone into separate rooms and did not allow each other to talk to one another uh, interviewed them individually about what their experiences were in their trip, and every single one of them reported seeing exactly the same things. That's so wild! Isn't that you crazy? Know,
1: that's that's one of these incredible mystery uh, things, you know, that we really don't uh, we don't really understand. Uh, there are there are uncanny experiences like that. Um, you know, actually, I, I've had. I've had uh, I had an incident, an incident a few years ago that really s- seemed very hard for me to understand hmm. without a belief in mental telepathy. Right. I, I, I had a specific experience. I was it had nothing to do with any drugs hmm. that either I or the other person, who was actually my father, uh, were on. But um, I actually had an experience that seemed to me to be telepathic. Now, a skeptic would say, you know just statistically a coincidence like this where he seems to know something that he shouldn't know um, something like if there's going to be that's going to happen sometimes I, I find that really hard to um, accept in this instance uh, I'll tell you what happened yeah I was going to ask
0: it, what 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 it, happened
1: interesting. so my daughter has a friend named Juliet who's a figure skater and my daughter whose name is Julia had never seen Juliet skate. Hmm. My father had never met or talked with Juliet. We there, there was no connection. So it was on a Friday, and that Friday night, um, my daughter was scheduled to go see Juliet skate for the first time. She'd never seen this before. That morning at 9 a.m., my father called me up in a bit of a panic. Mm. And I was quite worried. My father, my father who passed away last year. This was a few
0: years ago. I'm sorry to hear that. My
1: father was elderly, and uh, I, you know, when I heard the panic in his voice, I got very concerned. Is he sick? And um, and he said, uh, and and it also was a very unusual time for him to be calling me at nine o'clock on a weekday morning. Sure. He knows I'm working. So I I said, you know, Dad, what's wrong? And he said well, I just had this very vivid dream and I needed to tell you about it. And I said, what was the dream about? And he said, it was about taking Julia to a skating performance. And the specificity of it, you know, he didn't say we were taking Julia to a performance or something, that it was skating. Now, again, a skeptic would say, well, surely you mentioned something about it to him at some point and you forgot it's possible i really don't think so um, so that kind of uncanny experience i mentioned this because i wonder if that kind of you know That something like that might have been going on with the DMT, like they're they're having some sort of shared experiences, and we do know that being in groups can have a very powerful effect on people, and you know, an effect that goes beyond what's verbally or even conveyed in body language. So that's unreal. That's
0: crazy. That's I know extraordinary. What experience? Yeah, yeah.
1: I do want to say, by the way, while we're talking about psychedelics, Mm. that these are not risk free either. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I know that um, in um, in the late 60s and early 70s, when there was a lot of recreational use of their drugs, of these drugs, there was also an uptake in emergency psychiatric hospitalizations and, Mm. you know, people having bad trips They're They're not without risk. Um, and you know, they should be, they should be taken with care Yeah, and they're not, they're not, of uh, you know, they can be abused too. Um, in my book on electroconvulsive therapy, I talk about a doctor named Cameron, a Scottish born doctor who worked in Canada, who used electroconvulsive therapy and LSD and sedatives and a whole ro- you know, a whole range of things in very destructive ways. My I God. I think he thought that he was going to be helping people, but uh, there's um, very rich evidence that he really destroyed lives with this potent cocktail of treatments that he was that he was using.
0: That's insane. My goodness. But then again, I think, like you say, like the history of um, psychiatry is fraught with all of these horrors and crazy shit, you know, like, you know, even go, you know, the transorbital lobotomy, you know, trepanation, you know, all these all these sick fucked up things, you know, it's, 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 it's a crazy, crazy minefield that you have to navigate. And then you have people who want to experiment, you know, some people regard Freud as a, as a bit of a, you know, he did some crazy shit as well. Um,
1: Freud did. I mean, Freud's record, I, I, I think he provided us with some lasting insights and I, you know, but he's, he should not be idealized either. I uh, I teach a course on Freud and the psychoanalytic movement, and I'm not shy about criticizing him or his followers. I do, you know, I mean, the case of Dora was, is an appalling case in the Freudian yes. history, and. Um, and there's just plenty of things he got wrong. I mean, he was very dogmatic. Once he settled on a belief, he wouldn't let his followers deviate from it unless he himself deviated it. I mean, that's, like, that's not how science should work. That's, that's cult-like. And so I, I don't have any reverence for the man. Freud. None, really, yeah. no reverence for the man. I do think uh, he did provide some lasting insights, and I think it's important uh, hi- as a historian. I really emphasize that you know, psychoanalysis did not end with Freud. Mm. There's been lots and lots of developments since then. Um, some of them good, some of them bad, but it's a very rich field, and it's it's provided a lot of tools um, for thinking about. human mind you know you mentioned dreams before yes and uh, i read a book a a new book newish book on dreams i think you'll like this second book recommendation yeah please unless you've already read it it's called oracle of night no and it's an attempt it's an attempt to sum up current dream science and one of the things i i'm the author's name is uh is eluding me at the moment but um one of the things this author uh, stresses throughout the book is that actually some of the um, some of Freud's ideas about dreams—that's the one, right? Siddhartha Rivera—that's the one. One of the things that Ribeiro, um stresses throughout. Is is that Freud really was a genuine pioneer in the study of dreams. And some of what he proposed, maybe not all of it about dreams has panned out, and it fits with current neuroscience. That's how science should work. We should test, we should see what fits, what we need to discard and what we need to move forward.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it's it's one of those things, isn't it that uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in not defining people by their maddest edges. Um, I think that's probably a good way to move, uh, regardless of the of the of the of the of the crazy things that someone has done throughout their life that should not discredit the things of which that they that they that they succeeded on the victories that they had. Um, uh, But, you know, the world of I remember kind of reading uh, Professor Matthew Walker's uh, book, Why We Sleep, um, was kind of the initial interest that I had in the world of dreams uh, i think we 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 take dreaming as kind of a um just a thing that happens and sometimes we remember them and sometimes we don't and you know it's i, I don't think we really understand the complexities and the nuances that are going on in the human brain to create to create dreaming you, yeah well my you know goodness. i do
1: i do actually believe i mean that you know one of the sort of neuroscientific responses to Freud on dreams has been to sort of reduce it to you know, brain chemistry. It's just mm. like neurons firing. It's kind of random. Um, and uh, and I don't know if uh, that book, Why We Sleep makes that argument because I haven't read it. Um, but um, but I do, I have read about it. And one of the things, I understand that he uh, is very skeptical of Freudian dream interpretation. I do think that dreams have deep meaning. I don't think that they have exclusively the meanings that, uh, that Freud assigned them. To them, I think, for example, Freud was insistent that they always involve wishes. I think actually they do often involve wishes, even sometimes, as Freud insisted, masked wishes or disguised wishes. But there's other things going on in dreaming, problem solving, working out things that are going on in your life. It's a it's a process of working through. Um, and um, third book recommendation. Mm. I have for you there's a really nice book that was written in response called why can't we sleep okay by the analyst Darian leader and um, yeah really it's really really good book um but you know one of those things for those who say dreams really don't mean anything that it's just you know brain chemistry or neurons or whatever um, they have a, there's a problem that I don't think they have a good answer to, which, which is why do they, why do dreams feel so often yeah. like they, they're meaningful? Why do they have such powerful emotive effects on us if it's just this random stuff going on in the brain? I mean, you know, in Empire of Depression, I make an analogy with uh, with a book, for example. I mean, you know, in a sense, everything is made up of chemicals to a certain extent but that doesn't explain the meaning we place on them the example i gave was virginia Woolf's book novel to the lighthouse which i picked mainly because she was somebody else that i talked about in that chapter of the book but if your professor in your college class in the history of the british novel assigns for you to read to the lighthouse and says an analysis of this book and you come back and you say well you know it came from trees and the ink is made of carbon mm. yeah that's an analysis of the book it's not really what you're looking for
0: that's a really great uh a really great i think i'm going to be using that in my in, in my day to day. actually i really like that um you you told me an interesting uh le- uh, you know, uh, almost telepathic kind of situation. Since we're talking about dreams, I'd like to share something with you. Uh, it was, I think, my first experience, and and maybe my most profound experience of of a dream being mean, meaning more than the sum of its parts. Um, so I was I was probably about five or six years old. Now I grew up in a very conservative family, uh, a conservative Islamic family. My my parents are both practicing practicing Muslims. Um, And the idea of talking about things like nightclubs and, you know, uh, doing drugs and stuff like that was very much, you know, uh, I I wasn't aware of anything at that time. Um, And I remember having a recurring dream as a child, uh, which was about a building um, in in London, uh, in an area called East London, which is where I used to live. And the building was full of people and I remember walking in as a child, I was lost, I was very panicked and I would walk into the building and it would be full of flashing lights and loud music uh, and people in there dancing. Um, But everyone was very unusual, everyone had a smiling face on the front, but a crying face on the back of their head. Um, And I remember being terrified of these people with two faces um and they were only everyone was very conscious about making sure that the face that was smiling and laughing was facing everyone so everyone was in these weird positions trying to hide the crying face from from each other um and i remember having this dream maybe over four or five months and one day yeah and one day we went on a on a drive many years later uh, i would have been maybe eight or nine years old at this point so this would have been four or five years later um i remember going on a drive And uh, in an area adjacent to where we lived, there was a building which was the same building that I saw in my dream uh, called Faces, uh, which is a nightclub uh, in East London. Um, And it was my first ever recollection of what a nightclub would be like on the inside. And, it, you know, I remember growing up with this fear of the people with two faces. Um, you know, I was absolutely terrified of those environments. And it's one of the reasons why I grew up with a fear of loud noises and, and flashing lights. Um, was was this kind of recurring dream I had as a kid. But that was really weird. And to this day, I've never had anything like that before. And I just can't explain it.
1: Well, don't, don't ask me. I, yeah. mean, I can't <laughs> explain it either. I, I don't really, you know, I think these, these, these you know... um. There's several ways of looking at this. I mean, as I said, I, I have heard the argument that, you know, just from a statistical point of view, the universe is likely to produce some uncanny experiences sometime. I don't find that explanation very, very satisfying. I think there's probably a lot about mental life that we just don't understand yet. What appears to be magical and hard to uh, understand is probably just stuff that is happens that we do not have the scientific and technical means to understand yet. Um, you know, this is a bit of a tangential point, but mm. um, one thing uh, people uh, often don't appreciate significantly enough about Freud's theory of dreams is that he was very much against the decoding system where X means Y, or you know it's always the same thing. He believed you had to explore the patient's life. I mean, if, if, a, if a, a competent psychoanalyst were listening to you talk about the nightclub and the two faces, their first response wouldn't be to say, oh, that means such and such. Their first response would be to say, what does that make you think of what does mm-hmm. that remind you of how do you you know what what are your associations to that there's a lovely example um, that the psychotherapist irvin yalom gave in his book loves executioner about this um, and uh, it's a it's an example that i sometimes use with students to try to show why i believe in an unconscious mind so um the patient came into his office and said I had this dream and there was a box in it and the, um, the, the therapist, Yalom, said to him, okay, tell me about the box, describe the box. And the patient said, the first thing the patient said, first thing out of his mouth was, well, it wasn't a coffin. Okay, so why would somebody say that? Right? Mm. The, the analyst didn't suggest that it was anything like a coffin. Why was the patient at such pains to immediately cordon off that possibility? Yeah. Highly suggestive of the fact that, you know, it maybe the dream did have something to do with death or fears of death. Um, and that was pr- very anxiety producing. So, um, the, you know, the, and Freud, of course, also has an essay on this called On Negation. Where um, I mean, the whole idea of that essay, I suppose, the idea of uh, it's called on negation. Net, the whole idea of it is, of course, sometimes we doth protest too much, as Shakespeare put it.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, it's, 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 it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Kind of dissecting these things that we can't understand. And I think the the immediate thing is is to kind of put some kind of explanation to it and and to and to define it. Um, very similar to the way of which that it's very difficult to define depression. Um, the same way it's difficult to define the situation you had with your father, you know, my dreams, and I'm sure the countless, the millions, if not billions of different coincidental, strange, unexplained kind of supernatural kind of experiences that some people, uh, experience, right? Um,
1: in a way, you know, in a way I feel that although I'm, you know, all for scientific advance and. We should study these things as much as possible. Um, uh, I'm against uh, overly reductive science in some ways. And, um, you know, there is, I think that um, being in too quick to find completely rational explanations for things uh, can close us off to some of the mystery and wonder that surrounds us. And I think that's a, 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 a kind of impoverished way of living. Um, but science also does have the possibility of in some ways deepening the mystery and enhancing the sense of awe. Um, So, you know, I'm not saying that um, scientific investigation um, is, you know, is sort of against this, uh, you know, this sort of numinous experience, people call numinous experience that people associate with spirituality and religion, but which I think is a kind of experience that's available to secular people, although uh one thing i, I happen to be a very secular person mm. um so but one thing I will grant to the religious lifestyle which i I don't adhere to one thing I will grant to it is that it has much more developed ways of encouraging people to seek out the numinous to mm. uh, open themselves up to awe at the universe, and that's something um secularism is less has less developed now you know at the same time, I also think there's a lot of religious people who are completely closed to this kind of experience and mm. are just going through the motions because that's what they've been taught to do and uh and you know you know and you know and so it's not like it's not like you know being religious um immediately gives you access to this kind of awe and and mystery but um most religious traditions do have, um, either formal or informal disciplines to try to help people get in touch with this kind of experience, which is generally taken to be some kind of experience of the divine. However, that's divine.
0: Mm. I think you know your 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 book definitely spoke a lot about the kind of history of of depression, kind of you know where it was, where where, where and where we are now. I think that the last question I wanted to ask you, uh, Jonathan, was where do you feel as though, I think there's there's there's, there's two aspects to, to this question, I think where does the optimistic side of you feel as though that depression is going to move in the future and how will that affect upcoming generations? I think generations now are facing different struggles to which any generation prior have ever had to face. Uh, we're in an environment which is so fast moving, technology is so fast evolving i i i read an interesting thing in a book called uh, megatech 2050 uh which uh, gave the analogy uh, that if the car industry was to uh, develop as quickly as the phone industry has then cars should be able to travel three times the speed of light um right. so you know the, the technology is moving so so fast there are different struggles and different issues every single day with the upcoming generation um, and ones that we're going to have to deal with kind of vicariously as well uh, through the new generation. Uh, but uh, I wonder what optimistically, where do you feel as though that the world of depression, this epi- this uh, this epidemic of depression is is going? And I think pessimistically, where do you think it's going?
1: Okay, I think I would rather start with pessimism mm. and, and do optimism afterwards. Um, so pessimistically, I think that uh, I don't think um, depressive illness is going to be eradicated. I don't think it is like smallpox that, you know, we're going to have a technical fix that's going to make it all go away. I don't think we're going to have an Aldous Huxley world, which of course was a dystopian vision, but there was this drug Soma, which, you know, kept everybody happy that's not going to happen um so um so i think it's always going to be with us as far as the state of the world goes i mean you know i mean i'm you know technological pace of change is is can be disturbing and disrupting but uh, you know we are also looking at the effects of technological change in the form of climate change Mm. and um that I think is very hard to be optimistic about. I mean, one can look for hopeful signs of switching over to, um, you know, away from fossil fuels, but the scientific data that I, as I understand it, is pretty gloomy and we're going to have to deal with that. And and that not everybody's going to experience clinical depression from that, but some people, we are going to, it is going to cause some depressive affect, just as I'm sure the COVID pandemic um, did. So, um, so there is, you know, so there are grounds for pessimism. Um, I I probably could go on about that. Um, but what about the optimistic side? Well, first of all, we have an array of treatments right now. Um, we have antidepressants, we have psychotherapy, we have different kinds of psychotherapy. We have different kinds of antidepressants. For severe cases, we have electroconvulsive therapy, um, we have br- new technologies like transcranial magnetic stimulation, mm. we have new investigations of psychedelics. And so there's a, this gives us a repertoire of things. And I actually really do believe that most people are going to be helped by one or more of these, maybe in some combination. We don't know enough as we'd like as to who is gonna respond to which medication, for example, what the right treatment profile for what each patient is still a bit of an art more than it is a science. But I think that um, there's a lot now, there are very treatment uh, resistant depressions and probably will continue to be. Um, I do think it's important to understand that the very idea of treatment-resistant depression is a sign of some progress that we made, because 150 years ago there was no such thing as a treatment-resistant melancholia. It was all pretty much treatment-resistant. That's mm. we didn't really have much. I, I'm sure some of what went on, and you know, I'm sure some of what went on in terms of what was then called moral treatment and so forth, probably did help some people, but. You know, we had the very, very primitive uh, repertoire of treatments available. So that's some grounds for hope. The other thing that I think may be grounds for hope, and this is really something that I really hope for myself. I really hope that we can get past endless debates about whether it's tr- basically psychological or really biological is it caused by circumstances? Is it caused by genes or brain chemistry? This kind of dichotomy, I've had it. I don't know mm-hmm. about you, the rest of you listening out there. its It's time to move on. It's time to understand that we are psychological beings. We are social beings. We are biological beings. All of these things come together. And why does this lead me to some hope? The reason it leads me to some hope is that I think if you read the best science now, that's what it says. you It's very unusual now. It might have been more common in the 1990s, but it's very uncommon now to pick up um, uh, a textbook or a scientific paper in biological psychiatry that completely dismisses psychological content or social context, even if it might focus on the biological. By the same token, it's very unusual to pick up a, a you know, a, a good sociology of mental illness article or, um, you know, or even to pick up, even, you know, in psychoanalysis, which is often caricatured as being hostile to biology, which is something it really has never been. They acknowledge, you know, genes probably have a role. Brain chemistry probably has a role. We have a lot of work to do in sorting out all of the ways in which, biology and life events and social circumstance, adversity, the way all of these things interact is, is very much a puzzle. But the wrong approach to that puzzle is to insist it has to be one or the other. And I think we are seeing that in, in the science. I think that treatment in ter- such such a holistic treatment is what we need to conclude from that. And that is actually hard to achieve. It's hard to achieve because of insurance structures, structures. It's hard to achieve because um, people do want quick fixes and easy answers. Um, But, you know, that's a mentality that we have to try to overcome. The mentality that there should be a quick and easy solution that doesn't involve the person on multiple, on multiple levels. That's not going to get us anywhere.
0: Very well said. Very well said. I mean, I have to say, uh, Jonathan, uh, you know, first and foremost, the book was fantastic. Uh, oh, it was a brilliant book. It was, um, it, it. I have to say, you know, when I was looking through creating a new reading list and understanding what books I would be interested in, uh, the book in, immediately kind of captured my attention because of the, 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 the degree of relevancy and also the field of which that I work in. I, I, I work in tech. I used to work for a social media company you know you see the the direct effect that that depression has on individuals and also you see some of the unbelievably destructive things that social media companies are are actively mm-hmm. and consciously doing mm. to uh, to instill depression in young people and children i mean you know it's it's you don't have to be a rocket scientist to look at the statistics and realize that the introduction of social media is directly linked with the increase of of uh, child related suicides mm. um you know, it's it it does have a a causal relationship, as far as I'm concerned. So for me, reading the book, uh, it was really rather eye opening, and it 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 just generated a level of curiosity within me in the in the subject uh, that really uh, you know uh, encouraged me to reach out to you. And I have to say, uh, I have to thank you really quite uh, you know a lot for your time. It's been uh, a a real real experience talking to you and 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 doing this episode. So you know, thank you so much. I think a lot of people are going to have a take a lot of uh, a lot a lot of benefit out of uh, hearing you talk today uh, and the experiences that you've had.
1: I'm really glad you enjoyed the book so much. Um, It was something that um, it was a a real work of passion for me. And um, it was really important to me um, that people read it. That is, I didn't want just other historians to read it. I really Mm -hmm. tried to make this something that Uh, an educated layperson could pick up and and get something out of so i you know i really hope i succeeded in that and i've really enjoyed talking with you too i mean the conversation went in in directions that i wouldn't have predicted but i have no regrets um (laughs) and uh so it was a lot of fun i mean uh uh you know the title of the podcast the curiosity project i mean you know we, we talked about we we've got into telepathy i mean it's, uh, it's you
0: know, <laughs> talk about getting, diversity
1: it's smart, uh, curiosity so yeah
0: i couldn't agree more again jonathan thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it it's been a real fun one
1: uh the the, the privilege i believe was mine but thank you